turn uh, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been in a series that we've entitled Ready, uh, looking at Paul's letter to uh, the church at Thessalonica. And we've been digging into this letter, uh, trying to seek wisdom and understanding what it means to be a uh, follower of Jesus Christ. And what a great letter this has been because this church in Thessalonica was a church full of new converts, new followers of Jesus Christ who were seeking to understand and know what it means and what it involves to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and I hope and pray that you've enjoyed uh, our time in it because uh, as we've learned, these people that we're reading about are people that have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just uh, in name only, just by putting a, a, a label to themselves as Christians, but in the first chapter we, we learn that these people are turning away from their idols, turning away from their former way of living to follow Jesus and to obey him uh, with all uh, their heart. And what we're learning is, is that while they are an obedient group of people, while they are a people that uh, want to humble themselves into the teaching of God's word and receive the word of God from the Apostle Paul, we know that just as in our lives, so it is in the life of the Thessalonians, that being a Christian isn't a one-time decision that then uh, takes care of everything for the rest of your life. What we're learning is, and he says this numerous times, the Christian life, Paul says, is a walk. A daily journey uh, where we put one foot in front of the other spiritually and try to follow to the best of our abilities, relying on the Spirit to follow him in a way that will bring glory and honor to God. And we're learning that the Thessalonians are doing this in some real tangible ways. But Paul's going to now use some of the last part of this letter to talk about areas where maybe they're struggling. Maybe they find themselves as they're walking that walk of falling down or being tripped up by the things of this world, by the way they used to live life. Some of us this morning, if we're really honest with ourselves, would talk about the walk of Jesus, or the walk with Jesus Christ as being more of a stumble, more of a time where we spend more time on the ground than we do actually walking. Take heart this morning that the Thessalonians are in the same boat that many of us are. A tough walk, a tough journey, seeking to honor God and yet finding ourselves under temptation and trials and tribulation, losing sight of what it means to be a, a, a if you will, a, a follower of Jesus Christ who, who is longing to serve him and honor him in all ways. The Thessalonians help us in this. And one of the key areas that he's going to do that this morning is he's going to do it uh, in the uh, arena of sexual immorality. You see, uh, the Thessalonians had left a, a life that was full of all kinds of perversion and all kinds of struggles. And what they were trying to figure out and understand was what does being a Christian mean in the different facets of our lives? They understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ when it came to receiving the gospel. They understood you could have no other gods before you. And so they understood that you can't uh, uh, be an idolatrous group of people and say, do you follow Jesus Christ? Uh, they began to understand uh, what it meant to, uh, to love one another in a way that uh, would bring glory and honor to God. But in these last couple chapters, what Paul is going to say to the Thessalonian church is that your Christianity has ramifications to all facets of your life. He's going to talk about sexual immorality this week. He's going to talk about caring and ministering to one another next week. He's going to talk about what it means to uh, understand what a, being a follower of Jesus Christ means when you die what it means to when your hope is lost, when you look to the coming of the Lord as a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to work. What he's going to do is he's going to give us practical understanding that our walk with Christ impacts every facet of who we are this morning. And here's the great thing. 
what the scriptures tell us and what we'll be reminded with this week as we have been throughout is that we can be ready to honor and give glory to God in all that we do if we are willing to humble ourselves and put ourselves under the teaching of these scriptures. And by the Spirit's help, we can attain uh, the very things that the Thessalonians had, fellowship with their God and a life that was changing others around them. So let's uh, go to our scriptures this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word as we look at this passage before us. Uh, make sure that when you uh, have a seat, you grab that outline that's in the uh, bulletin as well so you can follow along. But here's what uh, the word uh, tells us this morning. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his spirit to you. Let's pray. Father God, we have come into this place and we have gathered for one singular reason, to bring praise to your name. We have done so by singing songs, by lifting up prayers, by fellowshipping with one another. And now, Lord, we bring you praise by sitting under your word and your teaching. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his life and his example. Thank you for the example of the Thessalonians, Lord, who teach us what it means to live pure lives in an impure world. Lord, we want to please you. Our desire is to please you. And, and it's easy in this place to say that this morning. But Lord, even in my earlier conversations this morning and in hearing the struggles and, and fights that our people are having with temptation, we recognize that as we leave this place, it gets more difficult. And so Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your word this morning. You would instruct us so that we may, may have the, the weapons at our disposal this week to be able to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. And turn to you in all ways and in all circumstances. Lord, I thank you for this church and, and its desire to sit under your word. And I pray a blessing on our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's easy to look back at things that you experience as a child with great nostalgia. On a recent vacation, I saw a hamburger joint that I remember frequenting as a child. It wasn't your run-of-the-mill fast food. It was where you got to, in essence, make your own burger. You got to put all the different toppings that you wanted on it. It was your way, if you will. And there was no uh, limit on what you wanted to do. If you wanted a lot of lettuce, you put all the lettuce you want. You wanted cheese, put all the cheese you want on it. And for a young boy, that was heaven, right? I mean, that was the way you 
you lived. And I remember telling the boys when I saw it, I said, we're, we're going to go there. Man, I, I can't remember. The best burgers you could ever imagine. They were so great. And man, when you get to do all your own toppings and everything, you're going to love it. And so we went, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. The food wasn't that good. And, and I remember telling one of the boys, and the boy said, Dad, why don't you just tell us it was a burger place with a salad bar? You really enjoyed this? And I think my oldest son said, man, uh, you lived a boring life if this was fun. You see, we have a way of romanticizing the past. We look back with great affection. It doesn't mean that those weren't true things. But whatever it was that made me so excited about that place as a child really didn't stand the test of time. You see, my view was in some ways maybe warped to what really reality was all about. I share that with you as an illustration as to how we many times approach sacred scriptures. As we approach the Bible, we approach it with a romanced view of what is being talked about. For many of us, we will look at what is written and we'll approach, even as we're in this letter of 1 Thessalonians, we'll approach it with a romantic view. A romantic view that things are different than maybe how they're articulated. What I mean by that is we look with sterilized eyes at what we're reading. That we look and we begin to put on the Thessalonians who are receiving this letter, a letter where the issues that they're dealing with really aren't as bad as we make them out to be. Uh, They were living good lives. They were wonderful people. No struggles, no issues. Everything was just fine. And so when we approach a text like this, where Paul says, okay, everybody, Timothy has come, and he's, he's seen what you guys are doing, and, and he's come back to me, and he says, you guys are doing a great job. You're following the scriptures. You're doing what you're called to do. And I, Now, just a couple words of instruction. And as he writes this letter, he says, before I close out this letter, here's one of the instructions I have. Abstain from sexual immorality. I want to remind you that Paul's not writing this just coming up with ideas of what to write about. Hmm, What should I tell them? Let's come up with something out of thin air. You know what? Let's pick sexual immorality. I don't know if they're dealing with that. By the very essence of that being in the scriptures, understand this morning that that was going on in the church. And those issues and those struggles were alive and, and with all of, if you will, the soap opera around those things. The church, this wonderful church, was filled with individuals who were struggling in this battle of sexual immorality. Now, for some of us, we'll read right away and we'll say, okay, abstain from sexual immorality. Well, well, that would have been easy in 1 Thessalonian times. They don't have the bombardment of of sexual images and, and all of the stuff and culture that's going on. And so it would have been easy. So, you know, these, if you will, these wonderful little people with their bonnets on and, and their nice uh, bland clothing can sit with their hands folded and say, of course, Paul, of course we'll abstain from sexual immorality, as if a Christian would act any other way. I want you to know this morning that if that is your understanding of it, then you will be quick to excuse your own fight with sexual morality because what you will do is you'll say, they had it easy. But now with things like the internet, with things like cable television, with things like broadcast television, with magazines, and and all of the stuff that bombards us, it's going to be a lot harder for us than it was for the people in the Thessalonian uh, church 
because we've got it so much more difficult. Here's the thing that I want you to know this morning. We have a letter before us that is going to teach us what it means to please God in a world gone wild. I'm not talking just about today. I'm talking about what was going on in the first century in the northern part of Greece. In fact, all over through the Roman Empire. You see, what we need to understand this morning is that the issue of sexual immorality in the Roman Empire was one that was indeed sordid. The cities of the empire were pockets of wild corruption. From the upper class to the lowest slaves, debauchery ruled the day. It had been said that there was probably no period of time in all of human history where vice was more extravagant and uncontrolled than the time under the Caesars. The time that Paul is writing in. It was a cesspool of sin. William Barclay, in his uh, commentary on the book of 1 Thessalonians, says this. Let's look to the screen. In Rome, for the first 520 years of the Republic, there had been not a single divorce. But now under this new empire, it had been put, the divorce was a matter of caprice. Seneca, who was a, a uh, theologian, and, er, theologian a, a philosopher and statesman in the Roman Empire, said the following, women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. He goes on and says, in Rome, the years were identified by the names of the consuls, but it was said that fashionable ladies identified the years by the names of their husbands. Juvenal quotes an instance of a woman who had eight husbands in five years. Morality was dead. In Greece, immorality had always, had always been quite blatant. Demosthenes, i got to remember how to say it, Demosthenes had written, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. So long as a man supported his wife and family, there was no shame whatsoever in extramarital relationships. It was to men and women who had come out of this society like that which Paul wrote this paragraph. What may seem to many the merest commonplace of Christian living was to them startlingly new. One thing Christianity did was to lay down a complete new code in regard to the relationship of men and women. It is the champion of purity and the guardian of the home. This cannot be affirmed too plainly in our own day, which again has seen a pronounced shift in standards of sexual behavior. By the way, that was written uh, about 50 years ago. Paul, uh, Pastor John MacArthur put it this way, Thessalonica was rife with such sinful practices as fornication, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, transvestitism, and a wide variety of pornographic and erotic perversions, all done with a seared conscience and society's acceptance, hence with little or no accompanying shame or guilt. Unlike people in Western nations today, The Thessalonians grew up with no Christian tradition to support laws and standards that forbid the grosser manifestations of immorality. What were the life and times of these people who received this letter, who hear these words from Paul, abstain from sexual immorality? Listen to me, and it's not very um, popular to say that. The days of Thessalonia were far more difficult to be sexually pure than the day of the 21st century here in the United States. It was going to be a tall task for them, 
And what we learn is they're going to be able to do it. And what we're going to learn today is that we can do it by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as we approach the same passage that these Thessalonians in that culture were living in, let us appreciate that it is the gospel alone that changes lives. What I hope you don't walk away from this morning, if you are struggling in this area, is to say, well, I'm just going to try a little harder. I'm going to try with a little more might to not fall to these things. Listen to me. Try hard, fail doesn't work. What works is bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and giving oneself over fully to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is then and only then that not only will the gospel transform your life, but what we'll learn from this great example is it will change society through and through. So how do we address this this morning? I want you to notice four things that I think Paul draws out in this text. The first thing I want you to see is uh, each of them are really commands. Uh, They're commands. The first one is, is that we have to, as we approach this issue, if we want to please God in a world gone wild, just as they did in Thessalonica, we must first of all admit our own failures in this area. We need to admit our own failures in this area. As we approach a text like this, it is quick and easy for us to deflect it towards someone else. I can hear your thinking right now. Boy, surely glad that Tim, Pastor Tim, is dealing with this text today because so-and-so really needs to hear it. Oh, amen, Tim. Oh, how great on Valentine's Day. Just by the way, uh, we planned this sermon series almost eight months ago. Who would have thought that on Valentine's Day we would have been sitting here? Pretty amazing thought. And you're thinking right now, boy, I'm sure glad my husband's listening to this. I'm sure glad Johnny's listening to this. I'm sure glad that that, that person down the, the row is listening. But let me tell you something. Uh, what Paul articulates is he doesn't say anybody by name. In fact, he shares what he has done with this entire letter to the entirety of the church. Now, I know it says in the text, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He shares the word brothers. Is this a men's only message? Well, if we were to take the word adelphoi, which means brothers in the, in the Greek, as literally menfolk, then the whole letter and all of its writing is only written to the men. And that word brothers, as I walk through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, that word brothers is used not to speak um, specifically to men, but to an entire group of brothers, literally those of kinship in Christ Jesus. He's writing to the church. Men and women, young and old, married, not married, divorced, single, all of us. New believers, older believers, He is speaking in one voice to everybody. Now, why would Paul feel so confident that he could address such a, in essence, such a taboo subject within the church so generally? What would possess him to think that if I address this, if I share this in a letter, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about? The answer is in that Paul knew how God had created us. You see, God created you and I, in fact, every human being, with the uh, ability to not only experience all sorts of pleasure, pleasure that, that, you know, our days are filled with, 
We enjoy eating. We enjoy laughing with people. We enjoy um, good entertainment. We enjoy um, all different matters of things. We have hobbies. All of these things are things that God has given, the Bible says, for our enjoyments. But I want to remind you that God has also created us, and it was a part of his good plan and goodwill that he would create you and I to experience not only altogether generic pleasure, but a more specific pleasure, the pleasure of our sexuality. Now, I want you to be reminded that he did not give this gift only to the men folk or to the women folk specifically. He gave it to all. It wasn't given to a particular group of people. What I mean by that is that it wasn't given just to a segment of people outside of the general population. God's gift of sexuality was given to every human being. This universal truth and understanding is seen in the marking of our own children, who we say become adults. Predominantly, we determine that by their own sexual maturity. A child goes from being a boy or a girl to a man or a woman, not because of anything else in the maturity they have sexually. But what does it mean that we are sexual beings? For some, the answer is quite simple. We are sexual beings because God's given us certain organs designed for that particular purpose. To view our sexuality in that way would be to look at a massive iceberg and see the tip of that iceberg pointing through the water and say, there's the entire iceberg. But sadly, that's not all of it at all. It's a small part of the whole. You see, our sexuality is deeper than that that we could ever comprehend or imagine. We cannot limit our sexuality to biology, but it is intertwined within the very fabric of all of who we are. For no other better way to explain this, but our sexuality is a God-created buzz. I had to say something. I didn't know what else to do. A buzz, something that God gave us, that put within us, and that buzz gave us the capacity, and might I add even the desire for sexual things. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. That buzz, listen to me, this is very important. That buzz is not something that we should fight or suppress. We need to get that right in our heads. God has given us our sexuality, and our sexuality is a God, God's gift to humanity. And we shouldn't suppress that. We shouldn't fight that. We shouldn't seek, as, as people have in, in all manners of times, to either castrate themselves or mutilate themselves trying to destroy their sexuality. We shouldn't try to redefine it. We shouldn't, we, God has created man and woman, male and female, as a gift for mankind. Now, while we, can't, while we shouldn't fight or suppress this capacity and this desire... Like every other emotion and every other activity, we as believers must learn to control these things in a manner that is supported in Scripture. In a manner that pleases God, Paul says. 
Now, while we've all been called to have this capacity and this drive and desire, it also needs to be understood that there are varying levels and diversity of struggle in this arena. Knowing that the place that sexuality plays in our existence as human beings, the Bible affirms that, listen, sin affects every part of who we are. When we speak of total depravity, a doctrine that we as a church affirm, which says that we as believer, or we as people, humanity, have been affected by sin, what it doesn't mean, listen, total depravity, is that you're as bad as you could be. What it means is that sin is so pervasive that there is not a part of my body, there's not a part of my existence that has not been impacted by the presence, power, and penalty of my sin. It runs literally through my veins. Every faculty, every decision, every synapse, if you will, of the molecules within my nerve endings and body have been impacted and corrupted by sin. And I'm not alone. You and the rest of humanity are in the same boat. And as a result of that, we must recognize this morning That if sexuality is such a key part of who God has made us and sin has affected every part of our existence and our being, then sin has had a a, a massive effect on our sexuality. And I want you to recognize this morning that that's what we see in the world. The reason why Paul says we shouldn't live like the world, notice in the text, we should not live as the Gentiles who do not know God in their passions is because apart from the work of Christ in our lives, that sin and that drive of sinful sexuality will become so pervasive in the life of a human being and so pervasive in the life of a culture that it will literally begin to define who we are. And we see that in our culture today. And so what are we to do? First of all, we must admit that this is a struggle for us. I feel pretty confident this morning that there isn't one of us, listen, who hasn't wrestled with allowing our sexuality to control us, or at minimum, uh, that our sexuality has tempted us through the flesh to sin against God. Whether we've used it to manipulate people, whether we've used it for selfish uh, desires to pursue pleasure, whatever it is, we have allowed this area of our life to be impacted by sin, and it has forced us, or maybe better word, it has caused us to make decisions that are contrary to the will and plan of God. I don't want to go any farther in this message without saying the following. As the one doing the preaching here this morning, as one who absolutely loves Jesus with all my heart and has devoted myself to the advancement of the gospel, I've got to confess that this is an area I've always got to be on top of. I've got to watch. Now you say, well, that's unbecoming of a preacher. Well, let me tell you why I share that. Number one, because it's true, we shouldn't lie, right? And as a pastor, I need to be careful that when I say I don't, I can allow pride to set in and say, boy, I've got this all right. And you know what happens when we say that? Pride cometh before the fall. Here's the other problem. I don't, as a pastor, want to get up and preach a message like I've got this thing all figured out, that I am immune to these struggles and to these issues. 
and then have one of you leave and say, I must be the only one struggling in this class. If the men and women sitting around you aren't man or woman enough to tell you that they're struggling, you can rest assured that the guy that's preaching to you this morning is in the fight with you and is just as broken, as messed up as you are. But here's the thing, and this is important. Just because we're broken, just because we're messed up, doesn't mean we don't have the capacity through the reliance of the Spirit and grace of God to change the way we live. And that's a battle I always want to see victory in. So maybe you're struggling today. Maybe you're fighting. And I want you to know you're not the only one in the fight. We're all dealing with this. This is a part of who we are. And and as we wrestle with it, we need to recognize we wrestle. But it's a battle we can win. It's a battle that Christ died on the cross for us to have victory in. It's a battle that through the help of one another, that we can say no to these things and say yes to pleasing God. So here Paul writes a group of people who are struggling. They're struggling with sexual immorality. The important thing that we need to see is, listen, our sexuality and our struggle with it isn't monolithic. What I mean is isn't one size fits all. Just as each of us look different than one another, so our sexuality and the battle that we face has in, uh, um, intrinsic differences that are different from person to person. Why? Because we're made different. While we all share much of the same structure and and characteristics as human beings, we recognize that we are different. And we recognize that because sin is such a pervasive thing, that it impacts people in different ways. For one, sin may activate itself in the anger or emotion of a person. For another, it may be the area of, of lying or cheating. Still another, it could be all manner of things. But for many, the issue of sexual sin is something that we face. And here may be a big reason why. Not just because of who we are, but what we've experienced. You see, sexual experiences, whether good, bad, or ugly, have a massive, a massive, impact on our lives. Your upbringing, how you saw your mom and dad, how you saw them, and I mean this in, 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 in very um, uh, clean ways, I guess. It's not the right term I'm looking for, but I'm preaching on the subject. My mind's going to be a little crazy. How did your mom and dad show their sexuality to you? How did they live it with one another? Were there things in your childhood that came uh, into your life that, that radically transformed the way you understood things? Did someone violate you as you were growing up or, or during the developmental times of your, your life that radically changed the trajectory? I want you to understand, we cannot turn these things away. One of the reasons why Paul is writing to these group of people is they had grown up with their sexuality being so deformed that they no longer knew what gospel-centered sexuality looked like. And so when they saw the real deal, they're like, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't seem to feel good. That doesn't seem to feel right. And we as a culture must recognize because of the pervasity of our sin 
and the evil that men and women do that people are walking around and probably many in this place are absolutely broken and turned upside down trying to figure out I'm a believer now. I want to follow Jesus Christ, but this issue of sexuality has got me so turned upside down, I don't even know which way is up anymore. And so we need to recognize this morning that when we come into contact with people who are struggling with sin, even sin, let's, let me be honest with you, that may bring disgust to your life, please listen to me this morning, that you are looking at just another broken individual. Another individual who needs Jesus as their Savior, just as you and I do. But God doesn't want us to stay here. You see, if, if we were living in the world, the world would say, okay, accept your failure. I always think it's somewhat um, hypocritical that the world comes down so hard on people who fall in this area. We've seen politicians We've seen celebrities, and we are quick to, to tell the world, I'm talking of, uh, of the world, that, that, that they are quick to tell us, take, eat, enjoy, drink it all in. But the second you p- move past a particular norm or a particular area, we're going to shun you, or we're going to mock you. You see, the Bible makes it clear That we must admit our failures, but admitting it isn't going far enough. We can't just say simply, well, I'm an addict, I I was born this way, and I'm going to stay here. We admit our failures, and the Christian then accepts, write this down, accepts God's plan for our lives. What are sinners who struggle with sin to do after they give their lives to Jesus? Paul tells us in verse 2. For you know what instructions we give you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let's stop there for a moment. We are called to live in light of God's will for our lives. Now, God's will for many Christians is something that seems uh, a bit um, cryptic or mysterious. It's not altogether clear. For the person who has a big decision that they need to make, who are seeking the will of God, it it seems as if he is silent on these matters. I wanted you to understand this morning, he isn't silent at all. He's crystal clear. God's purpose for our lives, notice, is the word sanctification. That's a big theological word. Let me help you to understand what it means. Sanctification means the setting part of from something to something. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The best way to explain sanctification that I can come up with is every night, when our family sets the dinner table, we go to the same cupboard, and we pull out the same red dishes. If you've been to our house and and we're having a casual meal, you know you're going to get the red dishes in the Badal home. And so the red dishes come out. And around the table, the kids will grab plastic cups, and and we'll grab our run-of-the-mill silverware, and we'll have a meal. That's that's our everyday, ordinary table service. 
But when we're having a nice event, whether it's a holiday or we're celebrating a big moment in our family or friends' lives, and it's something special, Amanda doesn't tell us to go to the cupboard and grab the red dishes. She says, go to the other room, go to the dining room, and in that hutch, you're going to find plates that are beautiful. These white china plates that have these beautiful um, moldings in them. I know that's not the right word, but words are evading me this morning. Um, and, and a gold rim. These beautiful glasses, stemware that, that, that is gorgeous. We, we are so very careful. The kids with gloves walk these things out. And then the silverware isn't good enough to just simply put out. She polishes it to make sure there's no handprints or, or fingerprints on it. You see, that's sanctified table service. Set apart, not only for ordinary use, but it is set apart for a particular use that the owner has for it. The Christian is given to sanctification. No longer are we to be lived, living a life of ordinary use. We are to be sanctified. God says, I've got a particular, a special use for you. You are going to be my advertisers. You are going to be my witnesses. And, and your job is to do something different than the unbeliever is. Your job is to point people to me. And because of that, I'm setting you apart. You are going to look different than everyone else in the world. The way you talk, the way you live, the way you love, the way you raise your kids, the way you watch entertainment, the, the way you use your money, the way you invest your time will all be sanctified. It will all be set apart, not for your purposes, but for God's purposes. So what's God's purpose? He says that your, God's will is your sanctification. What, what is his sanctification? What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? Notice in, in verse 1 that you ought to walk to please God. That word please in the Greek language, which this was written in, is the Greek word aresko. Listen to what aresko means. What it means to please God. It was used both in religious writing and in secular writing for the same purpose. Aresko literally means to accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of another. So what it means is, is literally at the root of it is sacrifice. I have desires, I have wants, I have um, uh, things that I want to do, plans, and I am willing to please you in any way, shape, or form. I'm willing to please you, and what that means is I am not going to focus in on my desires, my wills, my plans, but I'm going to seek to accommodate what you desire, what, what you want, what are your plans. So a resco for the Christian, with regards to sexual desire, means that an acknowledgement that, God, I have plans, I have feelings, I have desires. Let's put it in the context of this passage. God, I have a sexuality. God, I have sexual feelings. God, I have sexual desires. God, I have sexual dreams. God, I have sexual wants and, and aspirations. But for the Christian, that pleasure must be funneled through my commitment to please God. Does that make sense? 
I have plans, I have desires, I have wants, but my job to please God is primary, it's first. And so I must give myself to that first before I seek to accommodate myself. And so whatever decision I make in the, in the world of sexuality, I must first go to God and say, God, is this what you want for me? God, is this what you had planned for me? Because if not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. Because your plans, your desires, your wants are primary, mine are secondary. To follow God means he has first place because we are to please him. Now this is an ongoing uh, process. Paul calls it a walk. And it isn't always going to be easy. So what does it mean to please God? To submit to his will and plan. Notice Paul says very clearly, abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain. It's at the end of verse 3. That word abstain is the Greek word apekomai. Apekomai. Literally, it means to put distance between you and something else. To abstain from this pulpit literally is to do the following. Create distance from myself from something else. And to keep that distance... And the distance is determined that, that if I'm called to abstain, that I'm creating the greatest amount of distance I can from that pulpit or that thing that God has called me away from. Here's the problem. As Christians, we may not jump all into it, right? But I remember the games I used to play as a young Christian. I'd look at it. I'd get a little closer to it. I may not touch it, because that's really a sin, but I might take it all in, right? And look at how, what it's made of and, and understand and, and, and enjoy when I see others hanging out around it. Jesus says, Paul tells us here in the text, that we got to run away from it. we got to abstain from it. Create as much distance as we can. Well, what are we to keep distance from? Notice the text says sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. This word is used in the Bible. Listen, it's used in the Bible, and this is very important. The word porneia is also used in first century literature, secular first century literature, to describe the following acts. Fornication, sexual activity between unmarried people. Adultery, sexual activity that involves a married person outside of their marriage. Homosexuality, sexual activity between two people of the same gender. Bisexuality, prostitution. It was, in fact, the umbrella term that was used for all manner of sexual misconduct. And so when they would talk about pornea, they would speak of it, and they would say all of these different acts are pornea. It's where we get the word porn from. A couple quick things to notice. This is important. He does not say, Paul nowhere says, the Bible nowhere says that we are to abstain from sex. One of the first commands God gave a man and a woman as husband and wife was to be fruitful and multiply. And if you don't know, that means sex. Okay? If you don't, talk to someone afterwards. They'll help you with that. Okay? Explain those things to you. In the New Testament, Paul says that a husband and wife are not to deprive each other of sexual affection. Nowhere in Scripture does Paul say, distance yourself from sex. It's a gift of God's. 
He's given it to us to enjoy. What he's saying is, is that sex outside of the will of God in your life is to be abstained from. The command becomes difficult for two reasons. First of all, write this down. The reason why abstaining from sexual immorality is, is difficult is the external conflict that, that there is. There's an external conflict. Write that down. We are, just as the Thessalonians were, bombarded by all manner of images and storylines and scenarios that tell us that sex is fun and pleasurable and that you and I should deserve it and, and we deserve to have it however we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. And because of that, we live in a day where sex sells things like cars, clothing, cheeseburgers, and potato chips. It's all over the place. I used to enjoy watching the Super Bowl. Now I'm fearful of watching the Super Bowl. I used to like watching football. I enjoyed watching the Cubs in the playoffs this year until my kids learned what uh, Levitra, Cialis, and Viagra were. It's all over the place. We can't get away from it. And if you think you can shelter your family from it, you can't. It's all over the place. It's pervasive. It's all over the world. It's in the church. It's, it's all over the place. But probably the greatest enemy in, in, to Christian purity this, this day is the Internet. Porn is a $100 billion industry. More than 20% of that $100 billion is spent here in the United States of America. 18% of all internet sites are pornographic. How many is that? 29 million sites are dedicated to give you what you're looking for. Every day, every day, today, Google, Yahoo, Bing, all of the, the search engines will keep track. Yes, they will keep track of where you went, what you searched for. And they tell us across the board that 30% of all internet searches are for our, pursuit, our, our uh, searches for pornography. 30%. One in three searches. Grandma wants a recipe for mac and cheese. She's looking. Someone wants to know um, if the restaurant they're about to go to is a good place. And then the third one, someone's looking at porn. 70% of all adult men, studies tell us, and 40% of adult women surveyed said that they have searched for pornography in the last month. Those numbers climb, listen, they climb the younger the person who is surveyed. Last year, one of the leading movies was a movie called Fifty Shades of Grey, which was based on a book about a rich, sexually charged young man who got pleasure from beating a woman. And yet, in a world of feminism, listen, this is the stupidity of our world. In a world of feminism, women lined up to the tune of almost a half a billion dollars to watch a woman be abused for their pleasure. Do we not live in an upside-down world? Russell Brand, who is known as a celebrity for sleeping with all sorts of people, recently went onto YouTube to share that porn has ruined his life. It has, ta it has taken away his ability to actually have affection for real-life women. This is an unbeliever talking. This isn't a guy that is a pastor. The Medical Association is doing studies upon studies telling us that porn is destroying our understanding of love, relationships, and intimacy. 
A couple of years ago, Prime Minister David Cameron from Great Britain said that porn is corroding an entire generation of children. Playboy magazine, the hallmark of porn, recently made the decision. In fact, this month was the first month they would show no nudity in their magazine because people are growing tired of seeing nude images. Wow. We've got a problem. And if we don't get this thing right, listen, it's going to destroy who we are. It's going to destroy our relationships. It's going to destroy our marriage, whether in the present or in the future. It's going to destroy the way we look at one another. It's going to destroy the way we minister with one another. It's going to destroy our testimony. It is destroying us, but praise be to God that Jesus Christ saves us from porn. External conflict. Notice the internal confusion. Wow, time is not my friend today. If the external wasn't enough to deal with, the internal fight may be even more difficult. We live in a time where people are quick to say, I was born this way, or it feels right, or it's true to me. Well, what can we say about that? This is most seen in our discussion when we discuss same-sex attractions. And I'm here to graciously disagree. The premise of the argument that you were born this way, or it feels right, then puts you as the complete standard of truth. We know that not to be true. There are laws that tell us that we are not a rule of law unto ourselves, right? We have to, listen, I don't like driving 55 miles an hour. A car was made to drive faster than that, amen? That's a great place for an amen. But the law tells me, hey, bucko, you can't do what you want. You can't do what the car was made for. You need to drive that thing at 55 miles per hour. Why? Because we know that if we don't, Tim's going to be driving that thing 100 miles an hour with a big smile on his face, right? So we need laws. We need standards. And so we cannot say that the individual knows the standard for himself. The Bible puts it this way. The heart of the individual is deceitfully sick who can understand it. So your, your body, all of who you are, is lying in your sin against you. It's telling you things that just aren't true. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it defines at times your own logic. But God has a plan. And he alone defines what sexual truth is. And those that find them in that batter, whether from the outside or from within, God gives hope and grace. And as a church, we are here to walk with you and to help you to see the inherent goodness that comes when we seek God with all our heart and please him. Paul tells us how. He says, control your bodies. This phraseology is unique. To control oneself, listen, means it can be done. It means you're greater than your body. So harness it. Bring it into submission. You have the power to do so. Second, Paul says we should know how to control our own body. Why? Because it's our body. So so it's not something that we need to try to figure out. Well, I just don't know how to control my body. It's your body. Control it. There are things you say no to. There are things you can say yes to. You have to make those decisions, but the Bible helps us to know which are our yeses and which are our noes. 
Paul gives the why, so we won't wrong or defraud or hurt one another, he says in the text. Sexual activity outside of marriage, listen, is, is at the heart selfish. We wrong people when we take that from them, whether by consent or without it. And so we need to be careful. As young people, we need to understand that God has granted by his grace the marriage bed for the only arena of sexual activity. Anywhere else, Paul says, it steals from your brother because we use something for our own gratification. We use them for our own purposes. Porn is is advertised by its producers as harmless and fun. They say to young people, enjoy it. Did you know that probably one of the best, listen, the best voices right now against pornography isn't even a Christian one? There's a website called Fight the New Drug. It's secular. It's got no connection to any church. It's not evangelical in any way. And one of their chief arguments as unbelievers regarding this issue of sexual morality is the issue that porn is destroying the lives of young men and women who are in the... um, in the business and they have stories upon stories of how women are are being abused and, and lives being ruined so that you can watch them on your computer screen unbelievers are telling us this so if it's unfit the unbeliever sees it unfit how much more unfit is it for us as believers to engage in such activity God says Christians were not to live like this. So he gives us his word and he gives us one another. And he gives us a warning. God is the avenger, he says. He's the avenger. He's not going to sit idly by and allow this to continue to go on. And we're warned. Paul warns us. I solemnly warn you. In verse 6, God has not called us to impurity but holiness. So what do we do? Let me close with this. We've got to activate a plan of attack. Paul says, we've given you instructions. What are the instructions? The scriptures are chock full of how we can find victory over sexual immorality. Number one, it begins begins by recognizing that God's plans for you are good. Wherever you find yourself today, maybe you're a young person and saying, but I have these feelings, I have these desires, and God surely doesn't want me to suppress these things. No, no. But God has a plan for you. He has a will for your life, and he's given you the gift of sex, and he's told you where to find it. And so wait and, and, and hold, uh, hold God's um, affections higher than your own personal desires. Wherever you find yourself, recognize that God's plans are good. You see, one of the ways that the devil destroyed uh, Adam and Eve in the garden spiritually was that he got them to believe that God's plans for them were wrong or were no good, that God was a killjoy. And the second you go there, you are going to open yourself up to all manner of sin. Recognize God has good plans for you. Number two, you got to rely on the Spirit. I'm going to add a caveat. Rely on the Spirit and the help of others, and the help of others. The Bible tells us that we do not have to gratify the cravings of the sinful nature. How? The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.16 that we are to walk in and be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so we don't have to do that. So we put on the Spirit of God, and we walk in His truth and in His light, and because of that, we will free ourselves from falling in the darkness of sexual immorality. Rely on the Spirit. Find someone around you that you have trustworthy, a trustworthy relationship with that you can say, hey, brother or sister, hopefully it's a brother for a guy, hopefully it's a sister for a girl, by the way. I need help. I need you to pray. I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to speak into my life because I need someone here who will help carry this burden of sin and temptation in my life. Do you have someone? If you don't, then there's a greater chance you're going to fall. Number three, run from temptation. Run. There's only one place or one particular issue in all the Bible that it tells us to run away from, and it says flee sexual immorality. Don't think about it. Don't contemplate it. Run away from it. Don't try to resist the devil. Run from it. We need to understand that we can't handle it. That God has called us to get out of there as quickly as possible. Joseph in Potiphar's house gives us the antidote. When someone comes on to us, when temptation is around us, we run out of there as if we're on fire. Get out. Flee from it. Number four, repent of your sins. Maybe today you found yourself given to sexual morality. Repent. God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this evil thing. I want to turn away from you and pursue good things. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, even sexual immoral sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, including immorality. Repent. It's between you and God. God, I'm sorry. But God, I'm so thankful this is what you died on the cross for, to give me the grace I need in this moment. Number five. It's Valentine's Day. Husbands, wives, be active in romancing your spouse. My advice for married couples is very simple. Be romantic often. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. How do we fight sexual immorality? Husbands and wives are active in giving that God-given gift towards one another. And doing so in a way that shows the world that monogamy is truly the most glorious thing when it comes to sexuality. The Bible tells us very poetically that we are to drink from our own cisterns. It tells us that the wives of our youth should satisfy us. Solomon tells his son that he says, let the breast of your wives satisfy you even in your old age. That's good advice. It's not good for us to give our bodies to someone else but to give it to our spouse. Husbands and wives, have these conversations with one another so that your marriage bed will not be defiled. And finally, and and I think probably as important as any of these, get your kids ready for the fight. I don't have time to get into this. My time is already done. But let me tell you something. If you've got a child 18 years or younger in your home, and you have not, don't close your Bibles yet, I'm not done with you. If, 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 you haven't, if you haven't had conversations with them, not a conversation, conversations, ongoing, persistent, honest conversations, then you are hurting your children. 
If you do not have ways to protect your children from the stuff on the internet, then you are hurting your children. If you are not open and honest about your own struggles with this, letting them know that they are not alone in the fight, then you are hurting your children. And if you're sitting there this morning and saying, I don't know how to, then come to the next Passport Preacher for Purity that Scott and Naomi Etchison will lead. Uh, be a part of um, the class that we've done now twice, and I believe there's another one coming up on, on how to protect our children from all of the vices. Listen to me, we give our kids these glorious Christmas gifts, and what they are, little handheld welcome mats to every adult bookstore in the world. And if you're not p- putting uh, safety measures around that, you are hurting your children. Come around them. Put your arm around them and say, yeah, God has given us sex and we're thankful for it. You wouldn't be here without it, but God has given it for a place. And brother or sister, young person, God has given that to us in a way that only pleases God in the marriage bed of a man and woman for an entire lifetime. The Thessalonians were struggling with sexual immorality, and so are we. And by his grace, God inspired Paul to write these words. Thanks be to God that he wrote these words that would give us wisdom to live differently. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and my prayer is simple and short. Take what we've learned today, and as sensible people, let us apply it to our lives. Lord, let us be transparent with one another, confessing our sin to one another. Let us be accountable to one another. Let's bear one another's burdens. Lord, we're not doing this alone. And so, Lord, I pray that this place would be a place where grace and love and truth would be spoken to all of us who are broken, especially in the brokenness of sexuality. Now, Lord, lead us from this place, now learning a little bit more about who you are and how we ought to live so we can fellowship with one another, so we can honor one another, so we can live with one another in a way that pleases you. Now, send us forth now in fellowship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.